we now worship God by listening to His Word. Our text this morning is found in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13, the transfiguration account. While you are looking for Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13, I remember during my first pulpit supply here in America, in a Dutch church, my passage was in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and I was waiting for everyone to find 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And uh, one minute passed by, and I still hear a crunching of, I thought, the Bible pages, and it was the Dutch mint uh, <laughs> zip bags. So I'll give you a moment to take what I started calling the ordinary mint of grace. <laughs> Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Beloved congregation, hear now God's word. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked, hey, why do teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, as we open your holy word this morning, what we know not, teach us, what we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. During World War II, the Japanese uh, took control of a very important and particular island in the Philippines called Bataan. Probably heard of it. 75,000 Filipino and American troops were forced to make a deadly 65-mile march to prison camps. And an estimated 
17,000 men died during and after the infamous Bataan Death March. Now, if you go to Bataan today, you will see that they have built a 95-meter-high cross atop of a mountain to memorialize the Bataan Death March. Now, it's clever that they also put an elevator inside the cross so that visitors can go to the top of that cross and see breathtaking scenery overlooking several cities and wonderful islands that were once abandoned and desolated but are now free and beautiful. The blood of the prisoners of war was waged and spilled for the freedom of the Filipino people. And beloved congregation, so is our freedom from the slave market of sin as the precious blood of Jesus Christ was spilled for us on a mountain and on the cross. And now not only do we ascend the mountain of the Lord, but by setting our eyes on the cross of Christ and see everything else, it becomes a lens how we see everything else as beautiful and free. C.S. Lewis was on point when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Beloved congregation, let us believe in Jesus Christ and behold him supreme in our lives. It is the one thing that determines everything else. You see, our ignorance of who Christ is and his work leads not only to the misunderstanding of his word, but also the misapplication of his will in our lives, in our church, and in our society. If you look at our text, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, struggled with unbelief, which led to their misapplication of God's word. And so I want to call all of us this morning to three concrete actions on how our right belief about our Christ leads to beholding him supreme in our lives. So we have three points, and we can see that in our bulletin. We also have uh, keywords for little children. So little children, you can memorize the keywords. The first point is we look to Jesus Christ in all his glory. The keyword is look. Number two, we listen to Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. The keyword is listen. And point number three, we live as people for whom Christ suffered and died and rose from the dead. The keyword is live. Look, listen, and live. Now let us look at the first point. We Look to Jesus Christ in all his glory. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 3. Again, let me read it. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, 
intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. That's the ESV translation. Now, the transfiguration happened six days after Jesus in chapter 8 asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter gave probably one of the best Christological confession. He said, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the connection between Peter's confession and Jesus' transfiguration was significant. You see, in the Bible, when God reveals himself, he reveals himself through word and deed. And the same is true in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Miracles are not an end in themselves. They serve to authenticate the words of Christ, word and deed, right? The transfiguration was the deed, the miracle that vindicated the prophetic words, not of Peter, but of Jesus in the previous chapter about his suffering, death, and resurrection. But you see, the transfiguration is unlike any other miracle. The miracle happened to Jesus himself, and that is significant. It is also significant to note the transfiguration was recorded in the first three gospel accounts, right? What happened to Jesus on that mountain tells Jewish and Gentile readers alike an important truth about who Christ is. Now, we ask the question, how about the Gospel of John? He did not record the transfiguration, but we can see, even reading the first chapter of John, that it was actually an exposition of what the transfiguration implies, and we will see that in a while. Now, there is no doubt that Jesus was in the state of glory when he was transfigured on that mountain before his disciples. Now, this tells us several things. Number one, that the suffering and death of Jesus, which he prophesied in the previous chapter, are not going to be from below, but from above. It is God's will, not the will of man. The book of Mark is about Christ's power and authority over all creation. That's why it's power-packed gospel account, right? The transfiguration of Jesus was a statement of his authority. Yes, even over his sufferings and death. Now, the second implication of this miracle is that his suffering and death are not the end of his work as the Christ. His transfiguration looks forward to his exaltation in his glorious implication. And that's the only second time a miracle happened to Jesus himself. And that's, that tells us that the transfiguration looks forward to that glorious resurrection. Now, the third implication of this miracle is that Christ fulfills the scripture. He is the center and the grand story of God's redemptive plan. He was the Messiah that the prophets talked and prophesied about. It was a vindication 
of all the prophetic words that God has given man since time immemorial. Now look at verse 4. And there appeared, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. The mention of Elijah and Moses here are very significant, right? Now, we, we know this. If you are a real estate agent, you should know that there are three important things as a selling point, right? Location, location, location. Now, let me use a Dutch illustration. Now, after driving around for pulpit supply in the Midwest uh, and Michigan, we've been to North Michigan, Ellsworth, uh, filled pulpit for an OPC congregation there. My middle child began to love farm life. And one time she told us during breakfast that she wanted to marry a Dutch husband. <laughs> Immediately I know that location is important, so I told her, you are going to Dort. <laughs> and you'll probably get married in the summer of your junior year. <laughs> Kidding aside, in the Bible, location is a very important question. Always ask that question whenever you read the Bible. The location of Christ's transfiguration is on a mountain, and Elijah and Moses appeared with him. What does that tell us? Now, if you remember reading God's law earlier, I mentioned that we are condemned before Mount Sinai outside of Christ. In our call to worship, I said that we are being summoned to ascend the mountain of the Lord. Right? The theme of mountains in the Bible is essential. Moses and Elijah were also mountain guys. They're not from the Midwest, apparently. They received God's word on Mount Sinai, right? Remember? Now, here's another interesting thing. Moses and Elijah also had a glimpse of God's glory on Mount Sinai. Both of them. They receive a word, which when we look at verse 7, the Father speaking to the disciples, and we see that the parallel of the disciples hearing God's word on that mountain in verse 7 and having a glimpse of the God-man Jesus in a state of glory tells us of an important continuity from the gracious old covenant to a new and better new covenant. Now, we know that Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration were not mere apparitions, right? Because it says in the text, they were talking with Jesus. Now, Mark did not tell us what they talked about, but Dr. and the historian Luke did in his account. And they talked about the word that was used is the departure, literally Christ's 
exodus toward his death. Luke chapter 9, verse 31, which he will accomplish at Jerusalem. And that's another mountain. They talk about the meta-narrative of God's redemption plan, Christ crucified. The transfiguration of Jesus in the presence of Elijah, Moses, and even before the disciples clearly shows the continuity of God's redemptive plan from the old covenant into the new covenant, from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Prophesied by the prophets Moses and Elijah, receive and will be proclaimed by the apostles Peter, James, and John. John Calvin was on point. God is comprehended in Christ alone. He is front and center. And beloved congregation, to believe that Jesus is your Christ is of first importance. To know for sure that Christ lived the life you cannot live and died the death you should have died should give you your greatest joy and assurance in life. Because the joy of our salvation is again front and center of our whole being, of the life of the church, what we celebrate every Lord's Day and what sustains us and equips us to go out to the world and live out our faith. It is the purpose of our vocation, the goal of our parenting, and the hope in our grief. Christ crucified and the joy of our salvation in our union with him. Looking to Christ as our Messiah is not exclusive to our salvation as sinners, but even in our sanctification as saints. Because the glorious gospel of grace is not only grace for the salvation of sinners, it is also grace for the sanctification of the saints. The same power that saved us is the same power that shall see us through in this life. And so I ask the question, who is Christ to you? Is Jesus supreme over your lives, over your education as a student, over your marriage? When there's argument between husband and wife, is Christ front and center and what you want to accomplish is to honor Christ. Who is Christ to your family? Who is Christ to you as a student, as a mother, as a father, as a son or daughter, as an employer or an employee? Who is Christ to you determines everything else your principles, your philosophy, your purpose. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, look to him. Look to Christ. Behold him supreme. Now, before we came here to the U.S., we visited the memorial cross in Bataan a long time ago. When we were on the top of the hill, 
true story. A great cloud passed through and the cross vanished before our eyes. The 95 meter high cross. Now, just a disclaimer, we did not hear a voice. But I remember I was telling my wife, you know, this, this would be a good illustration in the future. And here it is. You see, when the author of Hebrews exhorted his congregation to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, it implies that our disobedience, our sinfulness, our lukewarmness are not the main issues. They are the consequence of the main issue. And our failure to fix our eyes on Jesus is the main issue. It is always the main issue. When you remove your eyes on Jesus Christ, there will be consequences. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we look to Christ first and foremost. Secondly, we listen to Christ, the beloved Son of God. Looking to Christ and listening to Him go hand in hand. You see, Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got his eyes on Jesus, right? But was he listening? Was it not clear what Jesus said? In Mark chapter 8, Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, what part of suffer, die, and rise from the dead was unclear to Peter? He just heard the sermon last Sunday, six days ago. The sad thing is that no matter how glorious the transfiguration was and how it was clear what Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talked about, Peter, though his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he was not listening. And that is the reason why he had a different interpretation of the transfiguration, right? And brothers and sisters in Christ, it is one thing to look to Jesus, but quite another to listen to him. Listen to Peter, verses 5 to 6. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make, let us put up three shelters. Your translation, ESVU's tents. I like New King James and King James uh, rendition here, it, it used the word tabernacle. Let us put three tabernacles, right? One for you, for Moses, and for Elijah. Now, if Peter had paid attention to the words of Christ in the previous chapter, the purpose of the transfiguration would have made sense to him. Christ's transfiguration was looking forward to his redemptive work and glorious resurrection, not looking backward into the old ways of the old covenant. Instead, Peter thought of a plan. Aha, that was a good plan, or was it? When I filled the pulpit, 
Oh, last year, in, in a church here in Michigan, a URC congregation, the pastor, I remember the pastor telling me uh, this quote. I remember this. He said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Now, Peter's proposal, without a doubt, was well meant, right? But it was almost laughable. His ignorant response was backward into the old ways. Building a tabernacle. Really. He failed to see that the transfigure of Jesus Christ looks forward to the new and better way. Jesus, as the Christ, did not need a tabernacle to dwell in because Jesus is the Son of God who tabernacled and dwelt among his people. We mentioned that earlier that John, in his account, exposited that. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus tabernacled and dwelt among his people. Now, Verse 7 tells us, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, there's a lot of things happening here that you can trace back to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Because the cloud here is Shekinah glory. And Shekinah glory in the Old Testament was God tabernacling among his people. It was God visiting his people. And we see here again another shadow from the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ. So, beloved congregation, like Peter, in our ignorance of God's will, we tend to put up man-made tabernacles, if you will, thinking that doing what we think, feel, and tell ourselves is good is the way to go. Like Peter, we tend to be blinded by our well-meant plans for our church, even our families, our careers, and our priorities. It's not always true to equate good with God's will. Because the heart is deceitful above all. You might be proposing in your consistory a good plan for the church, but is it really God's will? That's why we test every spirit, right? Our hearts can very well tell us that what we want for our children, our church, and our career is good. Is it really? Our dilemma is not to simply know what is good, but to ultimately do the will of God. Our plans may sound good, but unless it is the will of God, it will not prosper. And the Apostle, Paul remind, the Apostle John reminds us, test the spirits whether they are from God. Let's, let us listen to Jesus and live accordingly. It is one thing for Peter to confess that Jesus is Christ, but it is another to live by his confession. It is one thing to confess with our mouths that Jesus is the Lord. 
It is quite another thing to behold Him supreme over our lives. It is one thing to confess that we believe in the one holy, apostolic, and Catholic church. But it's another thing to dispense charity to those we disagree with. Self-serving and man-centered agendas do not have a place in the Christian life and in the life of the church. Now, God has appointed concrete means whereby we can listen to Christ, right? We don't experience that Shekinah glory anymore, but we have been given concrete means. Number one, we listen to God's word and make diligent use of God's ordinary means of grace as we listen to the preaching of God's word every Lord's day. And second, Helvetic Confession tells us that whenever God's word is faithfully preached on the Lord's day, it's as if Christ himself is speaking to us. diligently use the means of grace. Come here every Lord's day with faith to receive God's preached word. A second extended application, let us lay hold of our Reformed tradition. It is a helpful fence to protect us, to protect us from falsehood. Never ever remove a fence from its place. Because once you remove one fence from its place, the time will come that other fences will be removed as well. Because tolerance, ungodly tolerance, is the mother of liberalism. Number three, concrete means how we can listen to Christ. Let us talk, talk to your elders. They are Christ's under-shepherds. If you are planning to get married or change careers, if you have marital issues, have questions about your faith, you are discouraged or distressed or depressed, talk to your elders. They are appointed by God to minister to us. And number four, catechize your children. Catechize your children, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because whether we like it or not, the world, this world, this fallen world, will catechize our children. So look to Jesus Christ, listen to him, and live accordingly. Now this brings us to our third and last point. We live as people for whom Christ suffered and rose from the dead. Verses 9 to 13 tells us, that Jesus and the three disciples, while they were descending from the mountain, the topic of Christ's suffering and resurrection was brought up. Now, one familiar theme in the book of Mark, which is mentioned at least ten times, is how he would not want his disciples or other people and even demons to speak about him. Now, only this time he told the three disciples, when would be the right time to speak about him? Right? Verse 9 says, And as they were coming down to the mount, down the mountain, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone 
what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, the transfiguration looks forward to the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is the ultimate deed that validates and vindicates that Jesus is indeed the Christ and the Son of the living God. The resurrection of Christ is the vindication of everything Jesus thought about himself and everything he has done, especially his death on the cross. And Jesus was explaining to them the importance of this resurrection. But take a look at verse 10. It says, They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Now, the people back then believe in the resurrection from the dead. It's not a new doctrine that Jesus was teaching. It's a new and better way that's true, but it's not as if it was a new and it was the first time they heard of the rising from the dead. And this is really interesting because when you look at verse 11, they asked a question. And they said, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Remember this. There is always an assumption in every question, right? When someone asks a question, there's always an assumption of an answer to the question. For example, when my wife asked me last December, when she asked me, will having a crock pot help make cooking Filipino dishes easier? I know that she wants one. Those efficient crockpots that you probably have one going on back home right now. Now, what was the assumption of the disciples when they asked the question? Now, look at the question. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They were referring to the prophecy of Malachi, which is always understood to be the day of glory, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is supposed to be glorious, right? Contrary to the idea of Jesus dying. That was the assumption behind the question. They were asking this question because they still cannot accept the fact that Jesus needs to suffer and die. There was a doubt in them, an unbelief, even after witnessing a glorious miracle of the transfiguration. Did Peter's plan make more sense to them than the plan of God? I think so. Did Peter think that by putting up tabernacles, Jesus would not need to die? Right? It makes sense. And that it would be the day, of the, glory, uh, the day of glory that Malachi prophesied, prophesied about. Elijah was there. Peter must have thought that if people went up to that mountain and saw Jesus with Elijah and Moses dwelling on their tabernacles, they would believe Christ was the Messiah. Yes? No. 
In the previous chapter, 8 verse 32, Peter had the audacity to rebuke Jesus for saying he would suffer and die. Did Peter think he was setting his mind on the things of God? Chapter 8, verse 33. By trying to look for ways for Jesus not to die. The disciples missed a very important messianic work. The Messiah must suffer first. He is not the Messiah if he did not suffer. Jesus said in verses 12 to 13, And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now Mark here was quoting from the book of Malachi, right? John the Baptist and his ministry of preparing the way of the Messiah fulfilled Malachi's prophecy in one sense. And the disciples understood this as it was described in the Matthew account of transfiguration, chapter 17, verse 13 of Matthew. It says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So this is an interesting pericope, right? Jesus was speaking about Elijah. The first Elijah, but he was also speaking about John the Baptist. The second Elijah, but there is more. He was speaking of himself as the true and better Elijah. This is mind-blowing. Now, to give you an illustration, in the Philippines, we have mountains everywhere. I did not say that in a demeaning way uh, for the people in the Midwest, but... The first time we filled the pulpit at Des Moines, Iowa, we drove for six hours with just flatlands, corn, hay, and just flat. Right? Now, that's 300 miles. The longest mountain range in the Philippines extends for approximately 540 miles. We can see it from our house, actually. And here's the thing. From afar, it looks like one long mountain, right? One-dimensional. But as you go closer, you realize it's not just one mountain. Now, I did a mission trip to a tribal group at the end of that mountain range in 2011, and it took us 24 hours just climbing up and down one mountain after another, and then crossing rivers and streams of water through every valley. In the Bible, the history of God's redemptive plan also has its mountain ranges, if you will. The prophecy of Malachi about Elijah points to John the Baptist, yes. But Jesus is the true and better Elijah who shall restore all things. The first Elijah who appeared on the mountain of transfiguration was the first Elijah Remember, he did not die, was brought up into glory, right? The second Elijah, John the Baptist, was treated with contempt and killed. The third Elijah will suffer and die, but like the first Elijah, will be brought up from the dead, up into glory. The first and second Elijah 
look forward to the third and final Elijah who shall restore all things and who shall be the true and better prophet who shall come in glory with God's ultimate judgment to all the living and the dead. Jesus is the true and better prophet, not only bears the words of the Father, but who himself is the message of the Father. And the message was clear. Christ shall restore and make all things glorious in him, through him, and for him. But he must suffer first. And that is what the disciples missed. The Messiah is not the Messiah if he does not suffer first. Beloved congregation, exaltation is preceded by humiliation. That is the gospel of Christ, and that also sets a pattern for the Christian life. We share in the sufferings of Christ in order that we may be glorified with him. It is only fitting that we live and have our being to his glory and for the sake of the gospel, even if that means that we suffer. But consider the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Though there was ignorance, unbelief, and doubt in the hearts and minds of Peter, James, and John, we know that Jesus was gracious to them. If you look at the book of Mark, there are a lot of passages that speak about the disciples' unbelief. Right? In chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus asks, Have you still no faith? Chapter 6, verse 6 even says, And he marveled marveled because of their unbelief. Chapter 6, verse 52 says, For they did not understand, but their hearts were hardened. And chapter 8, verse 1 said, Do you not yet understand? Like the disciples, brothers and sisters in Christ, our hearts are hardened by unbelief, by doubt, by our failure to fix our eyes on eternal things. Because when our eyes are set on eternal things, it changes the way we see everything else in the here and now. But Jesus was gracious to Peter, James, and John as he is gracious to us in our unbelief, our ignorance, and doubts. And so let us call upon God and acknowledge that in our weaknesses, Jesus is our strength. In our foolishness, Jesus is our wisdom. And in our shortcomings, Jesus is faithful. And we know how God mightily used Peter, James, and John after the resurrection of Christ, right? From their ignorance, unbelief, and immaturity to their radical commitment to the gospel ministry, even through their martyrdoms. Like their Savior, they suffered and died for the sake of the gospel. Beloved, the transfiguration, look forward to Christ's glorious resurrection. And Christ's resurrection changed the disciples powerfully. We confess the same resurrected Christ. So let us go like the disciples and proclaim Jesus the Christ, the beloved Son of God, even if it means that we will be rejected, laughed at by this generation, by this culture, and be persecuted for our faith. Look to him, listen to him, and live for him. And so, listen to the gospel call this morning. Jesus restores all things.
run to Him. If you are here this morning and you think that you are too broken to get fixed, you are not. If you think your marriage of, or your wayward kids are out of God's reach for restoration, they are not. The same grace that overcame the disciples' weaknesses and shortcomings is the same grace that will save us, keeps us, and restores us. Let us look to him, run to him, and pray, Lord, help me and help my unbelief. If you are here this morning and you know that in your heart of hearts, you love God and want to honor him in your life, in your family and vocations, but you do not know how, listen to Jesus. Receive the preaching of God's word in your heart. Meditate on it day and night. Talk to your elders. Catechize your children. Now, if you are here this morning and know that what you profess with your mouth is, incons is inconsistent with how you live with your life, repent of your sins and run to Jesus. He wants to forgive you and restore you. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of the habitual and secret sins that drag you away from your Christ. Run away from those things that drain life in you and run to Christ. He is our city of refuge. And to the congregation, to look and listen to Jesus and live for him is not and will never be accomplished outside of the community of God's covenant people. This is not a solo mission. This is a church enterprise. And so let us help one another to continually believe that Jesus is Christ and let us behold him supreme in our lives. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, may the preach word teach us and give us and make us children conformed into the image of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.